Leader Talk. 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 Hi everyone, my name is Natalie Dawson. Welcome to Leader Talk. This show is proudly brought to you by Brainiac. Each week we are meeting with incredible leaders from around the world to discuss all things leadership and business insights. Each person coming on this talk show has given up their valuable time for one very clear purpose, to give back to small and medium business owners. Have you ever wondered why some people seem to fast track it to senior levels in business, even when there are other more experienced or expert candidates? You've probably heard that public speaking is one of most people's greatest fears. So how come in meetings a select few have the ability to say exactly what they mean with such confidence, clarity and influence, even when they're under pressure? How do they do that? Do they have some sort of magic or secret? Today, my co-host, CEO of Peerlight, Gus Sarianto and I are fortunate to chat to our guest speaker, Michelle Bowden. Michelle is a CSP, the highest designation for speakers in the world, creator of the Persuasion Smart Profile, a world-first psychological assessment that reports on your persuasiveness at work, a best-selling internationally published author with Wiley, and a regular commentator in print, radio, and online media. Michelle's run her two-day Persuasive Presentation Skills Masterclass over 920 times over the past 22 years for thousands of people who've all described it as life-changing, and she believes that anyone can be an exceptional and confident presenter. It's just a matter of knowing what to do and then doing it. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me, Natalie and Gus. Hello. Wonderful to be here. Hello to all the listeners. Thank you. And Michelle, before we start, thank you so much for your time. This will be a great, uh, uh, you know, session because you just a great, um, you know, uh, coach in my Thank office. Thank you. Bring it on. We're looking forward to learning from you, Michelle. But I'm sure you've listened to our past episodes and you know that we ask all our guests two fun questions. So we have prepared yours. Yes. And the first one that we've got for you is, can you tell us what your favourite colour is and then why? Ah, well, that's a very easy question to answer. <laughs> and anyone who knows me will know the answer to that question. My favourite colour is hot pink. Oh. <laughs> and why is that the case? Well, I just love the colour. It makes me feel good. And it's really interesting. You know, I when I started out in business, I, I opened my company doors when I was 28 years old. I had quite a lot of academic qualifications, but not a huge amount of experience. And I decided that the best way to make sure that mostly it was the boys at the big end of town who were buying training courses, uh, in order to impress those fellas, I thought I'd better have a navy blue and orange logo because that's the colours that men like. (laughs) So for many years I had a navy blue and orange logo because I thought that was good corporate colours. And then one day I was sitting on the balcony at my house and they had these beautiful diplodenia flowers, these beautiful hot pink flowers flourishing out over my balcony. And I said to myself, I'm going to change my branding. I'm going to change my logo. I'm going to change all my products. I love hot pink. And I reckon if I change everything to hot pink, it's going to be really successful for me. So I told my husband who at the time was horrified. He just said, oh, my God, you can't possibly rebrand a hot pink. What will all your male clients do? They'll think you've opened opened up a lolly shop. <laughs> and I just was so sure in my mind that hot pink was the colour for me. I just I, I backed myself when it came to this hot pink change. And, you know, Gus and Natalie, I tripled my revenue that year with hot pink in my as my main brand colour. And why, you might ask, because I became the best version of myself. I was myself amplified. So I I was happier in myself. I was more joyful as myself. I just felt I could be my true authentic self. And I think when all of us do that, then we are at our most powerful for sure. So, yes, hot pink. What a great lesson. I have to cut in there. I just love when you say be the true authentic self so you can be the best version of yourself. Absolutely. That alone yeah. is already teach me a lot of things. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and then what about your favorite animal and why? 
Mm, okay. So I think my favourite, I love all animals. My favourite animal I think would be a lion, Yeah. a mummy lion oh. to be specific. <laughs> Lions are fiercely protective of their family, of their community, of their environment, of themselves. Lions are brave. Lions are great fighters. So, and that's definitely something you've got to be in small business, right? <laughs> a fighter. I think lions are, are really interestingly, they're, they're good at being part of a pride. They're good at being part of a community, but they also very much independent players. They go off and do their own thing a lot of the time when you research them. Uh, in personality, some of your listeners might know that there's actually 50 different personality filters that make up each human and these 50 filters help determine why we take the action we take, make the decisions we make, why we behave in certain ways. Most people are very familiar with a psych tool called the Myers-Briggs type indicator, the MBTI, and that tests four personality filters. One of the ones that MBTI doesn't look at is whether you're what's called an, an independent player a team player or in the middle a proximity player and so an independent player is someone that just likes to work by themselves they're not very good at joining in with team activities they aren't very good at remembering to update people on what's going on in their business in their life they just prefer to just sit behind their computer screen or get out on the road if they're on in sales and they're out on the road get out on the road and just be on their own someone who's a team player really needs everybody else at the extreme end, they need the everybody else in order to achieve the outcomes that they've been set. And then someone who's a proximity player does both. They go to the team to get the inspiration and the, you know, the team spirit and to get clear on what are the objectives and who's taking what part. But then they go away by themselves often to implement the activity. That's called a proximity player. And a lion is a proximity player. And I'm a really good example of someone who's that. Most of the time I get on with it by myself, but I have to check in with my clients. I have to check in with my team in order to be able to make sure that I'm not just going off and doing what I feel like is a good idea when it doesn't suit the the, the greater ambitions of, of everybody. Yeah. Long answer to a question about what's your favourite animal, Michelle. <laughs> Absolutely love it. But my next thing is before we go on to, you know, talking about um, presenting, I did give a bit of an uh, introduction to you, but it doesn't give it justice because there is a lot more to Michelle than what I mentioned. But can you yes. tell everyone a bit about yourself so we know who you are? Yes, okay. Uh, most speakers are not great at doing this. <laughs> what can I tell you about myself? Well, I, I think I was pretty young when I started. I came out of university and I wanted to be successful fast. I, I did a fine arts degree majoring in art, art history. I didn't really know how to get a job doing that. So I ended up working as a secretary. I worked as a secretary for a couple of different companies. Uh, in particular, I worked for Lendlease. I started off as a secretary for them, working for two of the senior bosses. And I just got to the point after only about two or three weeks in this job where I thought, you know what, let's be honest, I'm not up myself, but I'm smarter than these guys that I work for. This is not working for me. And I started running training courses at my desk to help people use the computer system. Some of your listeners will remember the olden days where we had this thing called Word Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that, Dos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Word Perfect was a DOS-based computer application and there was no sort of intuition in how you use it. So I, <laughs> you had to know almost no coding to be able to use Word Perfect. Um, um, Word perfect well and I learned how to do that so I used to run these courses on my desk to teach people how to do that and I thought you know what I'm pretty good at this training thing I'm pretty good at explaining stuff I'm definitely helping people to be more productive in their jobs I think I'll be a trainer so I went off to uni and I did a graduate certificate in adult education and then a master's degree in adult education and while I was doing all of that very very grateful to Lendlease who paid for the whole thing and continue to send me to corporate training courses where I was the person sitting in the room learning from the trainer and I re I just knew I wanted to be that. When I said, when I grow up, 
you know, I want to be that. I want to be a, a corporate trainer who's helping people to love their lives and be more productive and effective in everything that they're doing. So after a couple of years at Lendlease, once I finished my degrees, I went off and joined a couple of different consultancies over the time. I worked for one company, which was amazing, called Morafe Workshops, where they had NIDA-trained actors co-facilitating the courses. NIDA's our National Institute of Dramatic Arts. So imagine that, people who've studied four years at NIDA, famous people who, who were then help, help, would help run the training courses with me. So imagine that someone from Neighbours, someone from Home and Away walks into the training room with just me. <laughs> to run a course and people just loved the fact that this famous person was in the room. But it was really good for me actually because I got to learn from those actors. What is it that people who are really good at acting, at public speaking, at presenting on a stage, what are all their tricks and there are so many cool little things that actors know that the rest of us in the general community don't know that would help us all to communicate more effectively. And I learned those things working there. And then when I had my first child, age 28, I set up my business <laughs> very, very creatively called it Michelle Bowden Enterprises. <laughs> and uh, since then, the rest is history. So I've been running my business now for 22 years and I do three main things in the company. I teach executives and celebrities for the stage. So when someone's got a road show or a very important pitch or some sort of a really important presentation they have to deliver, they might work with me to help them work out what is it that they want to say and what's the best way to do that. I also run a two-day, as you mentioned, Natalie, two-day persuasive presentation skills masterclass, and I've run it pretty much every week of the year for those 22 years. So I'm up to the 921st time next week. <laughs> so I've run it almost every year for many, many years in a row. And um, for that reason, I've been nominated for Educator of the Year for many, many years. And um, I think I became a CSP, which is the highest designation for speakers in the world. I think I was the, the youngest female to ever win that award or be, be, be um, designated a CSP. I think I was about 38 years old when I became a CSP and that was quite young and um, not very many women on the speaking circuit back then either, so uh, quite an honour to do that. Um, and then, yes, as you mentioned, I also have my psychometric assessment tool that now people are doing all around the world to know how persuasive they are and why it is that they're persuasive sometimes and not others. Yeah. And I have three kids and a husband and a brown labradoodle called Buddy. <laughs> Nath, we thought Michelle is 37. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. 50. Big 50 this year. <laughs> and, and by the way, to the audience, I, I just want to second that. Uh, you know, uh, our business Paylight utilized Michelle uh, coaching uh, in the past. And I, I can't, um, well, uh, well, this is not promoting Michelle by any means, but I have a fantastic experience uh, learning through Michelle. So, Michelle, uh, you are a CSP and you are a, a great coach of, uh, of your material. It's unbelievable. Thank you, Gus. And look, Michelle, everyone listening out there, we are keen to learn from you. So we've got 45 yeah. minutes to learn as much yeah. as we can from you. So I'm going to start with a golden question. How do we prepare hmm. for a good presentation? And is there such a thing as perhaps over-preparing? Preparing too much? Yes, that's a great question. Yeah. Is there such a thing as over-preparing? Well, the answer is no. Now let me take a step back and answer the first part of the question, how do you prepare? So over the years, uh, there, there are really two kinds of presentation skills trainers that exist in the world. The first type is what we call a stand and deliver trainer. So they, those people are teaching you how to stand well, how to have presence, how to breathe well, how to do your eye contact well, how to speak clearly with beautiful, clear, crisp articulation. They're more interested in the way you deliver a message. And then there's people like me who aren't so much about the stand and deliver. We're more about what's the whole point? Why, why are you even presenting in the first place? So I take much more of a strategic approach to the teaching and the delivery of a really good business presentation. And I would say to you that there are three phases to a good presentation in business. And it's not rocket science. All the listeners know this already. The three phases are analysis, then design, then delivery. So analysis is just where you work out what is it that I want to achieve 
and importantly, what is it that the audience needs to hear from you? I think in a, in this country especially, we make the mistake of thinking we're there to say what we want to say when, in fact, it's not really about what you want to say. It's more about how you can pitch it so that they hear it and then take the action that you require. So there's a really wonderful model for working out what it is you're trying to achieve and what your audience needs from you. That's phase one. Phase two is the design phase of the presentation. And there's two really important layers to a good design. There's a model that is international best practice that was invented by a woman called Dr. Bernice McCarthy. It's called Format with the number four and then M-A-T. And maybe the listeners want to go and Google that and have a bit of a look to learn a bit more about format. Essentially, there are four questions that you really need to answer every time you're presenting, whether it's Gus in your kebab shop. <laughs> hey, Michelle, you bring the kebab shop early today. <laughs> um, if you're, it doesn't matter what job you're doing, when you need to communicate some something to someone, there are four questions you need to answer. So let's see if we can work out what the questions are. Natalie, you play along because Gus already knows the model. So um, when you were turning up to interview me today, Uh, be really honest, be really honest with me. What were some of the things that you were wondering about how this was going to go today, this interview? Natalie, what were you How it was going to go? I was just excited to learn. Now you put me on the spot. Um, I'm wondering if For example, you might have been thinking, I hope she's, you know, hope she answers the questions well. I was wondering, (laughs) is it going to be more of a coaching or a kind of... uh, Will I be taking a lot of notes? Will I be learning or will it be more of a Q&A? That's that kind it. of, um, that was That's the angle it. I was thinking. That's it. So the real question there is, Will I be comfortable with the learning methodology that's used when Michelle's talking? Will I understand what she's saying? What am I going to get out of this session? If I'm going to take notes, will I be taking a lot of notes? Will I learn a lot? Will it be different to what I already know? Is it just going to be the same old presentation skills content that I've already learned before in other courses I did with someone else? So can you hear those questions or questions of self-interest? And that's the first question. We call them the why questions. And some of your listeners will have read Simon Sinek's book, Why? Start with the why. Um, So Simon Sinek, I'm pretty sure, got that book title from Bernice McCarthy's model. It's been around for a very, very long time. And we know for a fact you've got to answer that first. So why are we here? What's in it for you to listen to this message? Why am I talking to you about this? The second question is what? So what is it? What's the issue? that you're discussing, what's the problem that needs fixing, what's the challenge we need to solve, what's the matter that we are discussing here today. The third question is how. How do I implement this? How will it work? How will I fix this? And then the final question is what if, what else? What happens if you don't fix it? What happens if you don't do it this way? What happens when you do? So the example I often give is my daughter, one of my one of my kids, I won't use her name, she who shall not be named. <laughs> one of my kids never hangs their bath towel up and it drives me bananas. And <laughs> to be honest, I actually, to be, I really don't care about the towel. That something overtakes me and I suddenly become so just obsessed with this bath towel. I really, I really don't want to see it on her bedroom floor one more day. And I become very feral. And I'm sure your listeners can all understand how commonly that happens where we thought we didn't care and then something something happens and suddenly it's like this switch goes in our brain and we really care about the outcome. Uh, So to use this format model, I'd say, you know that you were late for school the other day and the reason you were late is because you didn't have a dry towel in the bathroom to use and Finding a dry towel took you that extra couple of minutes, which meant you missed the bus. Missing the bus made you late and then the teachers shouted at you and you didn't like that. So that's the why. The what would be, please can you hang up your bath towel after the shower so it has 24 hours to aerate. That's the what. What is the problem? What do we need to do? Now, how? How would you do that? You could hang the towel over the shower, you could hang it over the bathroom door, or you could hang it over the purpose-built railing that is attached to the tiles of the bathroom that is known as a towel rail. (laughs) That's the how. And what if you don't? Well, you might be late for school again or gross. You'd have to dry yourself with that smelly thing. 
when you do hang your towel, you'll be able to get on with the, all the more important things in your day because you just have your shower, get dry and get on with it. Can you So you can see there why, then what, then how, then what if. This is a an ex, exceptionally important model for all communication. It's how you design an email, a business case, a pitch deck, uh, a tender response, a conversation about a bath towel right through to any important matter. I've got a client at the moment that's um, trying to win a $500 million pitch. It's an IT company that's pitching in the insurance industry and they use format. All of those 10 presenters in that pitch team will use the format model to craft their pitch for their customer. Um, so that's that's the design. And then over the top of that, back in 2006, I created another model to make best practice better. So um, I know that you guys have talked to a lot of people who are quite entrepreneurial in the way that they go about their activities, whether they're inside an organisation more of an intrapreneur or whether they are, in fact, an, an entrepreneur like Graziella, when you spoke to Graziella. Um, the, the, the thing about... Uh, my model is that it makes best practice better. So I think that's a really important uh, ability for a small business owner like me. I could just teach what is best practice for the rest of my life or I could make best practice better. <laughs> and so that's what I did. I came up with a model that makes Bernice McCarthy's format model even easier to use, and we call it the persuasion blueprint. And essentially it's just um, to, to make the long story short, it's the use of what we call linguistic patterns, which is how you combine your words and your sentences in a certain order that just make you way more persuasive. And these linguistic patterns sit over the top of the format model and tell you exactly what to say in order to answer each of those four format questions. So that's the design of a good message. And you might notice I didn't even use the word PowerPoint there. It's got nothing to do with it. And then delivery. Delivery is phase three of a really good presentation and that's all of the stand and deliver stuff. So your stance, your gesture, your movement, your eye contact, your breathing, the way you interact with the audience, the way you use your slides, your visual aids, all of that is, is the delivery. And so can your question, Natalie, was how do you prepare? You need to, to do a thorough analysis. You need to use the formulas that great speakers use to design your message and then you need to think about all of those delivery capabilities like your stance, your gesture and your voice so that when you deliver the message, everybody sits up and wants to listen. And that's what it means to prepare. So, no, it's not possible to over-prepare because there's so many things to know to do that well. And interestingly, a lot of people will say to me when uh, I talk about rehearsal because a great, a great speakers rehearse. In fact, great speakers rehearse until they can't get it wrong more specifically, which means a lot. So a typical executive that I coach will rehearse the opening and close of a speech somewhere between 50 and 200 times when they're only delivering that speech once in their life. So it's quite a time commitment. And they often say, oh, I don't really want to I don't really want to rehearse it that much. I don't like rehearsing. Well, do you know what, everybody? No one likes rehearsing. <laughs> I don't like rehearsing either. And most of the top speakers in, in the world don't like rehearsing, but that's what you do when you're serving your audience. You put the effort in to make sure you're going to do the right job for them, do the best job for them. And there's a moment in rehearsal that we call the sweet spot. If you practice and practice and practice and practice, you will sound a bit robotic until you hit the sweet spot and that's a great spot to hit because what that means is after that you sound really natural and really authentic and you don't sound scripted at all you don't sound rehearsed at all it just sounds like you're just chatting and that's when you'll be your most powerful yeah michelle i i, I have a questions on that you know when natalie asked how do you prepare a good presentation can we offer prepared the word presentation when we think mm -hmm. about presentation so Lead it, uh, we representing small and medium business, mostly small. Mm. We, as like a web shop owner, I don't do presentation. But then you touch about format mm. in the way of persuade technique, right? You are the mm. master of persuasion. So, mm. so what you're talking about before is not so much about PowerPoint, right? It's not about standing in front no. of 300 people. This is about day-to-day, -day no. how I influence as a kebab shop owner, my staff, Natalie, to be more disciplined. That's right? it. Matt, do you like that? I, I think mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. I think of presenting as any form of communication, one-to-one, one-to-few, one-to-many, where your objective is to change their thinking or behaviour. So if your rascally staff member, Natalie, is, for example, not giving the best customer service that she could give and you sense that some of the customers are a little frustrated with that, I think it is a presentation that you are making to convince Natalie to pull her socks up and give the best customer service to your customers in your kebab shop. Uh, so you might think, often I we don't think of presenting as those moments. We think of presenting as those extra moments in life where there's a lectern and a PowerPoint and a microphone and all of this. And yes, that is presenting. And certainly I help a lot of people do that kind of presenting too. But most humans in the world are not up on a stage every day of their life. Most of us are just going through our normal day and these days in a virtual world as well. And we're just having conversations with people. We're having team meetings. We're having staff updates. We're, we're sending a lot of emails. We might be writing business cases and things like that. And the, it's the exact same models for all of those different communication situations as it is for that huge big one where there's a 1,000 people in an audience. It's all presenting yeah. to me. And Michelle, can I just ask this, the, you know, the why, what, how, and what else for a lot of listeners out there and, you know, small and medium businesses, we are selling all the time, whether it's on the phone, presenting there virtually this way in an office. So it's a lot. It takes up a lot of time. If we were to say, let's use a painter as an example, if they were going and presenting, maybe taking a phone call and presenting over the, over the phone in a, in a selling sense. How, what would can you give yes. an example of what the why, what, how, and what else would be in that aspect, so we can understand how a small business would use that, or a business? maybe I give yes. maybe I give a better context. I have a new cafe kebab shop, uh, and uh, and I need a painting, obviously, and I need to select between two painters. Uh, That's it. Yeah. So the, I think the painter there is what I would call pitching. They're pitching for business there. And that, yes, is absolutely yeah. a presentation. <laughs> so, you know, I think the mistake that most people make is that they think it's not a presentation and so they don't think that they should be using the formulas that great presenters use in this conversation to the kebab shop owner about their service and the quality of their service. Well, I think a lot of people think they're going to just wing it. They're going to turn up and they're just going to see what happens and they'll say whatever they say and if the customer doesn't like it, well, then they won't win the job. And I think, oh, my goodness, that's a terrible waste of everybody's time. Why not follow the formulas that great speakers follow and win the deal the first time without three meetings and 400 emails backwards and forwards and too much decision-making and umming and ahhing and then the kebab shop owner decides they don't even want to paint the shop anymore because it's all too hard. Why not just maximise the moment, right? So um, why? So you have asked me to come and pitch for you because you don't like the red walls, Gus, in your kebab shop anymore and you want your kebab shop to be fresh and light and airy and welcoming to all of your customers. So that's the why. What I what I offer is a, an end-to-end, I don't know anything about painting, I should just say here. <laughs> I need to give you a disclaimer. The painful appreciator. <laughs> so what I offer is an end-to-end service <laughs> where we will clean the walls, we will strip the walls, we will uh, prepare the walls correctly and then we will make sure that you get the exact colour you want at the best price to uh, ensure that your customers are welcomed and happy when they're at, and want to come back every to your kebab shop. So that's what I offer. Um, I've been in business 25 years. I have 17 uh, testimonials in this special folder here. I've also got um, in my special folder pictures of my paint jobs that I've done for other shops, including other kebab shops, because that would be relevant to you to see that I know how to do that. And then the how. So you will need to shut your shop at four o'clock every afternoon because we're going to need five hours over two days to get this job done. And that means you won't be able to trade through the evening. That's the how. Um, The what if is 
what if you don't like the colour? Um, is there a warranty on the paint? Um, it's, uh, what else could it be? It could be what if you can't shut the shop between 4 and 9 p.m.? What if that's your peak trading time? What else could we do instead? Maybe we could come early in the morning at 5 o'clock and try and get it done in the morning. So it's all the other considerations that you might want to think about. And it's also where we talk price and it will cost a hundred thousand dollars. There you go. So price is part of the what if as well. Yeah. You know what's interesting, Michelle, uh, through that example, um, you know, we see a lot of similar services, whether it's painters, plumbers, gardeners, very few actually prepared. Now, now we're not talking about they need to prepare with PowerPoint, but like testimonial, for example, like, when I call, for example, AirTasker, you know, you can now easily go to AirTasker searching for uh, for a small task, whether it's gardening, blah, blah, blah. everyone just put the money. And that's why the price always the cheapest. You will say, look at my test testimonial. Look at this reason. Look at the how, the what if. And I think one thing that we all can learn from your technique, the Michelle Bowden formats, is the fact that we need to put an effort to prepare so you can pitch your business to make sure that you get extra dollar. Because if everyone the same just rock up as a painter, for example, then we will pick as a client, as a kebab shop that making not much money today because my staff, Natalie, is not pulling the weight yet until I apply the <laughs> format. The fact that... I couldn't see any difference between different small business. They're offering the same thing. That's they rock up with. That's it. You'll choose the cheapest or you'll choose the most local or something like that. Um, so that I, I, I'm really a big fan of making yourself undeniable. There are some things you can't change, you know. Your nose sits on your face the way it sits. Yeah, your, yeah. your eyes yeah. are on your face the way they look. Your hair's the more or less the, the way it comes, you know. Yeah. There are some things you can't change too much, but... But putting an effort into warming up, doing your preparation properly, so doing your thorough analysis, who is this is who is this guy Gus who owns this kebab shop? Where is the kebab shop located? What where is that? What is their peak trading time? How long has the paint job looked like that for? Uh, what's the current state of the paint when we turn up? And all of that preparation you have to do to get clear on what the customer's needs are. And then designing doesn't take a long. You just saw I just did a format without any time at all. If I was a painter and I was doing that sixteen times a day, you'd get very good at it very quickly. You know, um, and then the delivery is just about making sure you pitch the message in a way that Gus, the kebab shop owner, wants to hear it. So if he's not interested in looking at samples of work, don't show them. If he's not interested in hearing who else has used you, then fine. If he's more interested in talking about making sure that his customers aren't disadvantaged over the, the period of works, well, then that's the thing you need to focus on. Mm. Pitch it so what do, what does the person want to hear? Give it to them as long as you're not over promising and under delivering. No, that was yeah. a great example. Really brought mm. it to life. So thank you. And then yeah. with your experience, are there common mistakes that you think people actually make when presenting that we can try and avoid? Yes, I think so. The two main mistakes are that they don't prepare properly, so they're not taking this seriously enough, to Gus's point. And the second thing in a business presentation is just dreadful PowerPoint. We're still seeing, I mean, I've been teaching this for what feels like a 100 years, and we are still seeing slides where the presenter says, I know you can't read this. <laughs> But I'm going yes. to show you anyway. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's that. absolutely. Well, it, it happened. Whether yeah. it's the text too small, whether the I see it many oh, times. Really? Uh, I know it's yeah. uh, it's too small, but let me explain it to you. Oh, I know. I know it's too small, but, I mean, really, what are you thinking? It's so selfish from the presenter's point of view. Why would you force an audience to squint in at a tiny little font that they'll never be able to read in a pink fit 
Why would you do that? That is the that's the opposite of persuasion. Talk about break rapport and turn people off. How many times have we all seen one of those dreadful busy slides? And it's just as bad in virtual presenting these days as it was when we're all live in meetings together. How many times have we seen a busy slide and then just thought, oh, I can't even be bothered even looking at that? And now what happens, unfortunately, in a virtual meeting is the minute someone shows a slide like that, we've got access to our emails on the same screen. And we've all learnt the art of sitting up straight, looking into the camera and pretending that we're listening to the speaker when we're really doing our other work, right? So you really got to do whatever you can to captivate an audience, particularly in a virtual meeting, so that there's you are undeniable and that there's no chance they're going to go want to go and do other work. They feel they have to listen to this now. And if you do your analysis, your design and your delivery well, then your meetings will be more targeted and tailored to the audience. You'll get a faster outcome so you won't be wasting as much time and you won't have to have lots of, of future meetings to clarify and confirm. Uh, so in the end, I think it just you're doing yourself a huge favour by putting the effort. That One of the things people often do, particularly at a board level, you know, when they're presenting at a board level in a business, is they create a really busy slide deck, which is the board paper, and then they use that on the screen as well. As their as their slide deck, that's that's not that's not okay by anyone's stretch of anyone's imagination. That's simply not okay. What we should be doing is, if we have to create our board papers or our busy business documents in PowerPoint, which is crazy, isn't it? But if we're going to do that, then you need to go file save as and clean that sucker out, and you need to have the second version, a nice, clean, clear one with big fonts lots of images, lots of good graphs and charts, something that's got really, but it's probably, you're probably building the points one at a time so you can direct people's attention. And then the busier version, which you started with to begin with, that that gets sent as the pre-read or the leave behind. Uh, you should just definitely never show a board paper on a screen. It's, it's just not good practice. It was never cool. It's definitely not cool now either. And Michelle, on, on the at the same time, you know, listening to you saying that, So many people, and I witnessed that when, you know, the, you know, even in the business that I lead, you know, when they're presenting, equally, yeah. if we are a small business or one-man operator business on the fan and then meeting mm. with a kebab shop owner, me, and then say, I know you do not know me, right? There's a lot of people, like a painter come and said, I know you do not know me, but I can paint. Like, well, if you know that we do not know, what you suggest is bring your data, prepare yourself. Instead of saying, I don't, I know you do not know me, but I'm a great painter. Yeah. And even with your rascally staff member, Natalie, who keeps turning up to work late and isn't giving good It's service. It's time to <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> if um, Gus, if you were to use to use this example, Natalie, I know you're a high performer. And, and just, Natalie, just by the way, will add something say. to you as well. I, I know, looking at her face, she's working for me for two years. She has a how to persuade something. But uh, let Natalie ask you a question. But let's finish this thing about fixing Natalie first. <laughs> so I'm just get to give a very quick example. Um, let's say you need Natalie to do five things that. That, that represent good service. And at the moment, let's say, for example, Natalie's not smiling, she's not remembering regular customers' names, um, she doesn't look people in the eye when she takes their money, and so on and so forth, altogether five things. If you're having a meeting with Natalie where you're going to explain the why, the what, the how, and the what if of customer service, When you get to the what do I need you to do differently part, which is the how section of a format model, and you've got five things that you're expecting this poor girl to remember, that is ridiculous to think that you shouldn't have some sort of a handout that you hand to Natalie that she can look at while you're talking and also that she can take away and think about maybe even put it somewhere in a diary at home next to her bed, somewhere where she can think about that on an ongoing basis because she doesn't want the sack. She's trying to do her best. 
but she can't remember five things to fix unless there's some sort of a of, of a handout to to support your argument. Uh, so just because it's that informal chat or it's just you know you're talking to one team member doesn't mean that we shouldn't be putting the same effort into this that we would if we had a thousand people in an audience. Yeah. Yeah, great. Michelle, can great. I just clarify for everyone listening out there, you know, we all do presentations. When we're talking about not an overly busy PowerPoint presentation, we're talking about less is more, but we're really talking about uh, prompters, aren't we? Like they're just points to start a conversation. Yes, so almost, that's almost right, actually. So um, I think a lot of people, and this is one of the mistakes people make, people use their PowerPoint as their cheat sheet for what to say next. Now, the really important thing to remember about PowerPoint is that your slides are a visual aid and their purpose is to reinforce your key messages for your audience. They're not to remind you what to say next. You're supposed to know what you're trying to do. You shouldn't need to be cheating from your slides to remember what you're trying to say. So design the slides, there's two really important questions. The first question is, is this the best way to visually reinforce this point? And if they can't read it, then don't show it. (laughs) That's my two famous sayings or quotes from Michelle Bowden. Is this the best way to visually reinforce this point? So if you know you've got on the left-hand side, you've got seven bullet points in the middle, you've got a picture, and on the right-hand side, you've got four graphs <laughs> going down the side of the page, then can I assure you that is not the best way to visually reinforce that point. If that was a handout that was the leave behind at the end of the meeting, that would be fine. But that is not a good slide because where is anyone looking when you put that up on a screen? Are they looking at the bullet points, the picture, or one of the four graphs on the other side of the screen? You just don't know and you can't manage their attention so the best if you're asking that question is this the best way to visually reinforce this point what you do is you turn that into many slides perhaps each of those seven bullet points becomes seven slides the bullet point becomes the heading on the slide and then you use a free photo library like www.unsplash.com download a free image and put that on your slide to take up the whole screen with your bullet point, which is the heading across the top. And now when you ask, is this the best way to visually reinforce this bullet point? Yes, it's memorable. A picture speaks a thousand words. We're going to see the heading. We're going to see the image. And in eight hours' time, people are still going to remember that point with that picture. But if you put seven bullet points on a slide, there's no way people remember all those seven points. No way on earth, even if they're highly intelligent, they just can't do it. It's called cognitive overload. They just can't store it in their brain. Yeah. Yeah, no, you have. It just reminded me of a time where I was sitting through a training session. It was eight hours and word for word was read off a PowerPoint presentation. It was the most, you could have done that yourself. So to actually, uh, yeah. you know, see that people use it incorrectly in this sense that they can just read oh. sentences mm. or read whole slides, you know, I've seen it go wrong in that yeah. sense. So that's why I ask the whole Absolutely. less is more because, you know, definitely an image does yeah. in this instance, you know, when you're looking at something, yeah. speak a lot better than the words itself because that's what the presenter's doing. And and absolutely never read anything off a slide let me be so clear about this never (laughs) because the human brain in the audience can't read what you're saying on the slide listen to you saying it and understand in their brain process it all at the same time not only that When you read something out, so often people will put up a quote on a slide in a more formal business presentation. They'll put up a quote and then they read the quote out. Oh, my goodness. So the audience's brain reads that way faster than the presenter's mouth can say it. (laughs) So you think you're reading it out and they're listening to you, but they're really not because they're reading ahead. 
So there's just no moment where it's ever okay to read what is exactly on a slide. That's why we say um, less is more, Natalie, your point, and uh, it, three, three key words per point that aren't a sentence. So that the three key words reinforce all the sentences that you're actually saying. They're just, a, as you say, they're like a, um, like almost like a signpost so that the audience knows what's being said in this moment. And where possible, get rid of all those bullet point slides that you've got in your decks and turn your three bullet points into three slides with headings and pictures or headings and graphs or headings and charts that reinforce visually the data. Yeah, much better way of doing it. Never read out a slide. Completely. Especially <laughs> there is people that say on the presentation, I know you can read it, but then yeah. they read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So you should, um, if you really want to show a quote, I show a quote in one of my keynote speeches that I do on the big stage and I'll say to them, I'm going to show you the definition of persuasion. And it's important that you see the proper definition of persuasion. So I'm going to stand over to the side here and I'm going to let you read it and then we'll discuss it when, once you've read it. So I walk to the side, I gesture at the screen, everybody reads my thing and it takes them about 10 seconds or so to read it. That's another really good test. If it takes longer than 10 seconds to read a slide, it's probably too busy. And so give them about 10 seconds, look out at the audience, check that they look like they're finished, and when you think they're finished, then say, so what are some of the things that you noticed in that definition and facilitate a discussion with the audience on what they just read? That's a much better way than me standing to the side and reading a paragraph to them. Oh, dear, we're not in grade, you know, grade five here. We don't need the teacher to read to us. <laughs> People can read their grown-ups. They can read for themselves. So just always think, like, is this the best way to visually reinforce this point? Reading to an audience probably is yeah. not it. No, that's great. Mm. And then, Michelle, based on that then, are there some words that you've come across that we should absolutely avoid? You know, uh, there are. Yes, okay, lots. I'm ready to write them down. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of words that you shouldn't say and this is not just for work this is at home so let me see if I can think of them all the first most important ones are but and however there's some really fascinating research that was conducted um, into but and however and what they found is that when you say to someone yes but so let's go back to your kebab shop for a minute Dus. let's say you say to Natalie um Natalie, you're not giving the best customer service to our customers and I'm worried that Bob and Joe, our regulars, might not come back because you weren't that friendly to them just now. And if Natalie says to you, yes, Gus, but I was busy <laughs> at the time, that's why I didn't give good service, what happens is the but activates the limbic system in the base of your skull <laughs> and forces you to go into a fight-flight response. So as that boss now of... Natalie, you're going to either be aggressive with her or rude to her because she's coming up with excuses and using the word but, or you're going to switch off your ears and you're going to think Natalie is a terrible employee and I've got to I've got to sack her soon. I don't know. I just can't talk to her anymore. I don't want to be involved with this anymore. So you switch off. It's the fight-flight response. Either you fight or you flee. Um, so but and however are no good. They they um negate the point that has just been made if I say Gus you look so handsome in black it just is definitely your color you look so beautiful in black it shows your gorgeous complexion your dark hair you look like a CEO you look fabulous in black but but I'd like to see you in white you know but it's like you look rubbish in black and you should wear white it, you don't hear the compliment so all the listeners here, when you're giving compliments to people especially, don't say, uh, you know, you're, you did all this stuff really well but you need to fix this because people don't hear the compliments. Is that, that is any, um, because the use of but, uh, even I'm the promoter of do not, in my business I always said anything before but is BS. I thought, yeah, I, like, just don't, don't say it. But. Then at the same time, I just say it again, but at the same time, I use it time to time. Is it any good practice that remind you when you are pitching, when you are standing, when you are presenting to, to, to become stick in your brain that you do not use that word? Yeah. Yes, there is, Gus. So if you say, and, and I'll answer that question and answer Natalie's original question at the same time, something else you should never say is um. 
or are or so. They're filler words. And the, the reason is that it just, if you join all your sentences together, it's hard for the audience to understand what you just said. It's hard for your stakeholder to hear what, what your point is. You wouldn't type um into an email. You'd just put a full stop. Uh, so you shouldn't say um, you shouldn't say ah, uh, and you shouldn't say so. And the way to get rid of um, ah, uh, so, but, and however, is to try really hard not to say it ever in your private life. So never mind about work. Just try really hard to get rid of it in your everyday talking when you're relaxed at home. If you can eventually get rid of it there, then what's happening is you're turning this into a new habit yeah. where you just don't say it yeah. anymore. Yeah. And that's that's hard. I'm not suggesting that's an easy thing for anyone to do. You really do have to say, on this day, I hereby declare I'm not going to say these words anymore. And if I say them, I'm going to almost chastise myself to in, in order to teach myself not to do it. Sometimes you need to even get a family member or someone who you love and who you can be loving to, to pick it up in you because you won't even hear. Gus knows my story. I, I check people's scripts after they've been on my training course. It's one of the things, services that I offer for free after coming to a course. And a, a gentleman sent me his script six months or so after a course and he said I hope you don't mind checking my script Michelle by the way I took out all the butts ha 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 because it's something I really focus on in the training and I counted 17 butts <laughs> in a script that he thought he had checked you don't even read it in your own emails you don't even read it when you write a document and you certainly won't hear yourself say it every time sometimes you need someone else to pick it up in you Mm. Would you like to know yeah. some other words yeah. you should say? Yes. I've got one written Definitely. down, so I'm wondering if this will come up in your list. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutes. All, everyone, can't, never, mustn't, isn't, shouldn't, those kind of words. One of the 50 personality filters where we started at the beginning of today's conversation is the filter called the matcher-mismatcher filter, and it determines how likely someone is to agree with your points. Someone who's a matcher looks for what's true and correct in what's being said. So I say gorgeous day today and you say, yes, it's beautiful, it's sunny, it's it's wonderful. So people in customer service need to be really good at matching. Mismatches are people who look for what is not true, what is, what is incorrect about what's being said. They burn calories trying to find that one in 100 where what you're saying isn't right. People who are engineers, scientists, doctors, lawyers need to be business analysts, auditors need to be really good at looking for the risk. So you, you can't fail the personality test. It's really important for everyone to understand it's not good or bad to be one thing or another when you're looking at personality. What's interesting, though, is that if you're presenting to someone who's a mismatcher, you have to be very careful not to use absolutes because the minute you say everyone does it this way, someone who's a mismatcher will say, I don't or not everyone. And it ignites this need in them to now listen even more carefully to what you're saying and pick holes in every little thing you're trying to say. An easier way would be to use softer words instead of all and never and can't and mustn't and won't, words like most, might, some, few, those kind of words are safer words for people to use. You shouldn't say, in a presentation, you shouldn't say sorry. That's, that's one that most people don't know. It's very common for people who are nervous to say sorry when they put the wrong slide up, say the wrong word, trip over their feet a little bit, and the audience doesn't care. It's really important to understand the audience wants you to succeed. They want, they want to love you. And if the minute you apologise, there's this really cool part in our brains called the reticular activating system. It tracks for what we know. So if you say sorry, the reticular activating system is now looking for all the mistakes you're about to make. And, again, it, it diminishes your persuasiveness. Have you ever bought a car, Natalie, and then you see that same car everywhere on the yeah. road, same colour, same model, oh, everywhere? So that's, that's your reticular activating system that notices that. Yeah, you mentioned that you have three kids. So when you're out and about, you I'm sure you see three children in families. Everywhere you go, everyone's got three kids because that's what you've got. That's your reticular activating system that notices that. So that's the reason we shouldn't say sorry. And probably I can see we're short of time. Maybe uh, the, the really the, the, the big problems are for those of you who don't know me, at the beginning of a speech. That's what we call an exclusive statement. 
what about those people who do know you? Yeah. You don't need to say, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Gus. Just say, I'm Gus. Yeah. <laughs> the people who know you will go, yeah, and the people who didn't know will go, oh, that's nice to know. Your name is Gus. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know me, is something you can get rid of. The other one that's really common on people's out of office and their voicemail and all sorts of places in their documentation, uh, please don't hesitate to leave me a message. Please don't hesitate to reach out and contact me. Uh, please don't hesitate is not a good use of English. Whatever you do, both of you right now. I better check. I, I can't even remember what's my message bank. I better check that. <laughs> I don't use it. I whatever you do yeah. right now. Yeah. Whatever you do right now, don't think of a pink elephant. Don't think of a pink elephant. I'm thinking of one right now. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say don't hesitate to contact me, the brain doesn't hear the don't. They hear hesitate. So if you don't want people to contact you, then say that. But if you want people to reach out and buy your product or service or come back, say, please come back. Please reach yeah. out. Please phone me. Please it. leave me a message. I get it. It's much clearer, much it, clearer way. Michelle, I can it. I just ask, what about I hear it and I see it very regularly when we're editing, to be honest. Like for me, it's like, okay, so was everything I just read not honest and now all of a sudden we've turned to honesty? Yeah. Is that similar as well? Avoid it? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people are triggered by to be honest. I think it's it's best to just not say that. Um, you, there are moments where it is actually good to say the words in fact or actually. So if I said to you it works, contrast that with it actually works. You can hear that actually is a more powerful word in that sentence. It's not correct English to say it actually works. If you typed that in and put your spell checker on your document, they tell you to take the actually out. Actually in that situation does make the situation more, the, the communication more persuasive. So copywriters use the words actually and in fact quite a lot in their copy if they're trying to sell you a product or a service. I'm not a fan of in truth or yeah. to be honest. Yeah, I, agree. Uh, I agree with you. It does imply that whatever was said before might not be true. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's the hardest thing. Uh, if we want to master how to persuade and how to present well, you can't just rock up. You have to prepare, including on your personal life, practicing the bad habits, the but, the however, Right, uh, the 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 use of to be honest, trust me. Tr yeah. Yeah. Uh, you guys can trust me that I'm the best pet <laughs> shop owner. Like, I mean, trust me, I'm a salesperson. Yeah, like, <laughs> you better off just say, yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, one of people's greatest fears is public speaking. And one of the one of there are lots of things you can do to manage your nerves. Lots of people fly to me from all around the world to learn the number one technique that I teach for managing your nerves. One of the other things that I teach is all of this preparation. You won't be nervous if you've done a thorough analysis, a good design, you've thought about your delivery, you've practised this, you've gotten rid of some of these bad habits in your home life and you're really putting your best foot forward, then how are you going, how, why would you be nervous? There's nothing to be nervous about there. You know you've done the work. I think the reason we get nervous is because we know we haven't put in the effort. We know we're trying to wing it. And the more self-focused you are in a presentation, the more nervous you're going to be. If you haven't planned what you're going to say, you don't know who the audience is, you don't know the best way of saying it, you're going to be so in your own head trying to work out what's the best way of saying this thing. You have to be nervous in that situation. I would be nervous too in that situation. It's just you know, prior preparation prevents poor performance for sure. <laughs> I know we're getting short of time, but Michelle, I want to ask about a situation. If you're pitching and, you know, whoever you're pitching to has a poker face, sometimes it really throws you off. Mm. It, you can't read, yes. am I doing well all of a sudden? You can go, oh, I don't know, should I change it? What do we do in these circumstances? We yeah. can't read what they're thinking and we've got a 30-minute pitch that we have to do if we're tendering or whatever it is or a meeting with a potential new client, mm -hmm. are there any tips that you can share yeah. to help us deal with these situations when uh, who we're presenting to does have the mm -hmm. poker face? That's it. It's a really, really relevant question in all situations. So if Gus is giving his team member Natalie feedback about her customer service, it's possible Natalie's face will be yeah. very blank when she's being 
you know, ostracised by her boss for her terrible customer service. If you're pitching to a customer, often the customer is very poker-faced in the way that they react because they don't want to give anything away to you. Um, in, in virtual meetings these days, people have their cameras off often. So how on earth are you going to know? And it's interesting that over the last nearly three decades of teaching this, one of the things people most turn up to my course for other than managing nerves and structuring their message is what to do to engage an audience, to have them really fascinated and listening. I would say it's too late by the time. So this is probably not the answer you expected. It's too late by the time you're in the meeting to be reading their faces. You need to do your analysis, your design and your delivery with those customers or that audience, those stakeholders in mind. And by the time you get there, you need to know you've done the work. It's too late to be worrying about whether they're frowning at you or not. <laughs> it's too late to go changing what you're doing. Uh, really, it's all about the prep. And also, it's really a funny, quick, funny story to finish with. Um, so I had this I had this guy, his name was James, and he was in a training course with me many, many years ago now. And this guy, James, was nodding and smiling at me all day. This guy, James, was into it. He was loving me. And at the time I was thinking, you know, this guy, James, he's really enjoying today. He's having a terrific time in this training course, nodding, smiling. He was almost lifting his bottom off the seat. He was so enthusiastic. And at the end of the day, I said to him, James, you seem to be loving this. What do you think? And he said, I don't know, Michelle. I've spent so much time nodding and smiling at you today. I haven't really listened to a word you've said. <laughs> We have to be very careful that we think we're reading something on someone's face is the moral of this story. That guy, James, in the DISC model, which is a behavioural preference um, assessment tool, is what we call high I. I stands for influencer and influencers are people, people who do nod and smile a lot when they're in a conversation with someone. And people who are really, really high I often nod and smile um, at the expense of their own listening, just like that guy, James. He wanted me to think he was listening, but he wasn't actually listening at all, whereas there was probably someone in that training course on the day who was grimacing and frowning at me, and at the time I might have made the misunderstanding that that person didn't like me or didn't like the content or wasn't going to buy into the idea, whereas that could just be their concentrating face. That person frowns and grimaces because they're really paying attention so don't, don't read the faces. The faces aren't necessarily telling you anything. And if you're not sure, ask a question. How does that sound to you, Natalie? What, what do you think about that, Gus? How might you apply that in your workplace, Natalie? What, what, what are some of the concerns you have around that, Gus? You know, ask it, actually ask a question that's an open question. That's the best way to tell whether someone's really on your page or not. And I think we have to remember when we go to a meeting, when we go to presentation, we think as we present, we're the one who's get nervous, yet the other person might be nervous going to that meeting at the same time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, in your kebab shop example, Natalie doesn't want to lose her job. Yeah. She values working for you highly. Yeah. She loves her customers in the kebab shop. Yeah. And there's who knows the reason why she wasn't giving good service at that time. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's something completely related to you, Gus. Maybe you haven't got enough good air conditioning and <laughs> she's too hot to smile at the customers. Maybe it's your fault. <laughs> well, Natalie, you have every opportunity to learn from Michelle how to persuade me. Okay. Fantastic. Look, we could go on. Um, there's so many more questions that we can ask, but I'm looking at the time. So, Gus, I'm going to hand it over to you for the wrap-up. Thank you, Natalie. Uh, before I wrap up, I just want to say once again, Michelle, thank you for your time. Thank you for donating your insight. Uh, I experienced firsthand your coaching, and I think for the audience, uh, Michelle have a book as well. I'm not sure, Michelle, whether you have the book beside you. Uh, this is your best-selling <laughs> book, yeah, How to Present. I've done my preparation, Exactly. Yes. And please also visit Michelle's website at www.michellebowden.com.au. Plenty of advice, plenty of uh, short videos that you guys can learn as well. So this is what I take from you, Michelle. 
Michelle has reminded us today that it doesn't matter how good your company is, how good your products or service are, how good your ideas are, and how good your message. If no one listening, then it's it's pointless. It's our job as the presenter to do what it takes to ensure people are always listening. And you need to do your homework. You need to do your preparation. We must remember that it's not about us. It's all about the audience. Our job is always to serve the audience. The one thing that I like, Michelle, about the last one hour, there are three phases to stand out presentations in business. Analysis, design, and delivery. We need to do what we can to improve all three approaches, even when we are just talking informally with people. Presentation that we talked today, that we listened from Michelle, is not about presenting in front of a thousand people. That's also as simple as persuade your daughter to hang the towel. Persuade your staff that not disciplined enough to come at work with discipline. How to persuade your boss how to get better salaries. All these techniques, Michelle can give you an edge to win. If you take the step to improve your presentation skills today, you will reap the extraordinary benefits. Learn, practice, prepare. And if you want to help, Michelle will be able to help you. Michelle, thank you so much for your time. Leader Talk, very fortunate to have you today. My great honor to chat with you both. Thank you so much, Michelle. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. For more information on Leader Talk or for some great resources to help your business grow, check out brainiac.com.au. Bye, everyone. Leader Talk. 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 Leader Talk.